Hi, I'm Karen Cook, and welcome to At Source Podcast, a place where natural health and well-being are at the forefront of the conversation. Gain useful insights direct from the source from doctors, industry experts, wellness advocates, and everything in between. This is a place for busy people who want to get to the core of health and wellness with information about the latest health advances and trends. In this series, we talk with and learn from inspiring leaders from all walks of life, touching on important topics that will help answer some of the key questions about natural health, well-being, fitness, and all things direct from the source. Steph Dowse is a counsellor and therapist with more than 25 years of experience in areas of mental health, psychiatry, trauma, addiction, sexuality, adoption, family therapy, couple counselling, workplace burnout and relationships, critical incident debriefing and adolescent struggles. She is known for her work as a relationship expert on New Zealand's Married at First Sight and is an avid believer that a person's ability to live in the present rather than the past or future is the key to a harmonious life. When not at work, she loves hiking in the bush, cooking healthy food and finding new ways to lie on the couch without spilling a cup of tea. Thanks for joining us today on the At Source podcast, Steph, powered by Nature Bee. It is so good to have you here. I think we're going to have a few um, good times along the way in our session today because I think it's important to inject a little humour um, into some of these conversations. And um, I'm really just interested to hear a little bit about your background. And I know you're incredibly busy, so it's so good to find time for the chat. So let's start with you. How have you been? And I'm just interested in what's keeping you busy right now. Um, well, I've been great. Thank you very much. Uh, what's been keeping me right busy, busy right now is probably everything that's going on in, in the world and in New Zealand and in our communities, which is stressed people, essentially. People who are really, really uh, reaching their limits in terms of coping and managing with all sorts of things. So I've been phenomenally busy in my private practice, but I also offer a, um, a wellness service to the screen sector. So I'm supporting people who go on TV programs, reality programs mainly. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm juggling a couple of bulbs in the air. Yeah, so is that a relatively new thing? No, I've been doing that for about two years now, two plus years, and it's, it's, I think it's really great. It's really progressive. It's about trying to do a wraparound support for people that go on these programmes as opposed to waiting till afterwards and there might be something that happens or they fall apart or they're not coping mentally and then they hire someone like me to come in. So it's, it's, it's really quite um, forward-thinking. And I think they've done yeah. really well. Do you think? Do you think that sort of bodes well for participation on um, on these sort of reality TV? Oh, I think it does. I think uh, def- yeah, it definitely does. Because obviously, people that produce TV programs, they they want the production to be the the shining light, and that's that's where all their skill set is. And um, the talent or the cast often need a person of their own, someone who's coming from a completely different bias, which is really just to look after them and make sure. They're feeling good and comfortable about everything. So I, th- I think it's it's been long overdue and it's fantastic that it's finally happening. And definitely a new thing, uh, just with this, you know, reality TV mm. becoming so much part of particularly, uh, you know, millennials and Gen X kind of viewing. Uh, look, I'm not at all surprised. I guess my question, I probably wasn't clear enough in the way I questioned that. I was interested in your thoughts around sort of the pitfalls or dangers or emotional stresses, um, you know, being part of these things, these reality TV shows. Uh, do you really know up front what you're signing up for? Um, I think people do. I think because I'm, well, someone like me is involved, that's my role is to actually really um, give them the, the no warts version of it. And I think the production companies are getting much, and much, much better at making it really explicit at the start. You know, it's not going to be a romp in the park. It's not going to be all sort of, you know, hotels and champagne and everything's sweetness and light. It's really long, long, hard, grueling days, at times when you're sort of sitting around not knowing what's going on. And, and then, of course, whatever happens on the show is, is anybody's guess. So I, I think what I've noticed is that people that go onto it now do seem a little bit more prepared, and they, when so, when stuff does happen, they've also got that direct access to someone like me to just help them process yeah. it and work through it. Mm, mm. And we can come back to that when we talk yeah. about 
first sight. So just moving on, uh, I'm just interested, obviously, um, in a little bit about your background, childhood, interest in relationships. I can see that you first began this kind of work back in Western Australia, and you said mm. it was incredibly well-resourced, and yeah. you just fell in love with this work. And it was initially, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of like a quick entry into something that would give you a qualification. Yeah, but the work itself and the actual um, experience uh, became a lot more meaningful to you over that time. It definitely did. Um, it wasn't something I, I was even sort of consciously thinking I was going to go into. Um, that whole thing about childhood's quite interesting because I was one of four children. My parents separated when I was quite young and my role, everyone has roles in families, and my role inadvertently became the one of sort of the older sister looking after a couple of younger ones, sort of, you know, at a practical level some of the time and at an emotional level some of the time. So I kind of felt like that was a, a role that I became quite good at without even realising it and then supporting it, perhaps a, a mother who was slightly not coping at times emotionally and so I ended up sort of supporting her. You hear those stories all the time. There's, there's one child that kind of steps into that role and other children have different roles in the family. So I didn't realise it, but I'd been conditioned to sort of look after people. And it wasn't until I got to WA and I thought, well, I need to get a job because I had a I had a, um, a classics degree that I did when I was about 19 and, of course, there wasn't much going in, in that <laughs> occupational field. So I did do a quick um, degree because I already had one and it got me into social work and then from there I got into counselling and then I started working in a psychiatric day hospital and then later on um, I, and I did my psychology training. So that was, the, that was the beginning, but it was a psychiatric day hospital that really got me... Um, inspired because I worked with a group of really progressive psychiatrists and they saw medicating patients as only a small part of the treatment program, usually at the start, to get them um, feeling what they call less aroused, to get their sort of levels of anxiety down, to make them more psychologically accessible. And once the patients were feeling more, um, you know, able to talk about stuff, then we moved them into a sort of a menu system of a group therapy program and individual therapy. And that's where we saw incredible changes in them. Hmm. So what you're really saying is that cognitive behaviour therapy and, you know, the the sort of the, the work that's involved in cultivating change really pays off. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, you can medicate people till they're blue in the face, but unless they actually do some form of psychological work, the problems that they had or the mental health issues that they're dealing with aren't actually going to go away. They're just going to be suppressed. Do you think that um, you have to be ready for that? Because I, I would have thought that if you were rounding people up and popping them into psychiatric hospitals, that not all of them would have been ready, set, go. Not at all. You're absolutely right. And the ones in the inpatient unit um, were not in that position really to, to be able to cognitively sort of grasp what we were trying to say. So the day hospital where I worked with was for people who'd been discharged, they'd gone home. And then they were coming back in to do the work. And we ran, you know, groups like assertion, self-esteem, problem solving, kind of um, relationship skills, really basic stuff. But they, all those things actually underpin a person's mental health because at the end of the day, our mental health is contingent on our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with others. Mm, and you, you do talk very succinctly about, you know, it's starting with you, you, me, that, mm. that you, nobody else is responsible for your happiness mm. uh, apart from you and that when you find the meaning, you know, in your own world, mm. uh, then you actually become a better partner and things kind of fall into the place better because you're not sort of, you know, seeking out another father figure or another, uh, you know, a guy's not looking for a mum or, you know, there's some really interesting sort of transference dynamics that people have without even necessarily sort of being tuned into it. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, relation, you're nodding away, so I'm obviously sort of onto something here. Um, <laughs> with, with the relationships, you know, piece, it's such a massive topic and mm. um, without wanting to sound too cynical here, it's sort of like human nature doesn't really learn from the past and we sort of sometimes seem to eat our tail um, in certain, you know, with I'm thinking about the war right now in Ukraine and um, the position that the Ukraine's in, it sort of has echoes of World War Two in terms of the, you know, the um, number of, of refugees leaving the country and, and so forth. So a huge exodus and I think, you know, we're the learnings and it's a little bit like that in relationships. You kind of get into the maze and then you go, 
oh, I've been here before, um, oh, I know what this guy's like, oh, yeah, you know, here's the red flags. And you and it is sort of like quite a job to detangle yourself from the familiar and you can go, oh, my God, I'm just dating a guy who's just like my ex-husband. How did that happen? Or so, so I'm just interested in, you know, fundamentally unpacking this notion of relationships being a connection between two people, but why are they such hard work? Well, gosh, there's a lot in that. First of all, I'll just comment um, about how humans haven't changed. I totally agree. I don't think it's just in relationships. I don't think humans have really evolved at all, psychologically or emotionally. Uh, when you think about the rate of change of our um, technology and all the advancements in science, and, and yet we, at the end of the day, are these you know, animals that are still operating on basic instincts and although we have supposed intelligence compared to our dogs and cats, we're not actually using that very wisely in terms of learning. And there seems to be some sticking point with a vast majority of, a majority of human beings who don't actually want to know more about themselves. They don't want to become more self-aware. They don't want to actually look in the mirror. It's so much easier, that cliche, isn't it, to look out the window than to look in the mirror. Um, so that's, that's really what you're talking about. And obviously relationships are the melting pot of that because it's when we're in a relationship, all our own personal stuff, whatever that might be, gets tested and brought to the fore. And of course, you know, like a show like Married at First Sight, for example, that's a pressure cooker situation. So you see that whole thing played out in a month, whereas we have years to play it out with our partners. And then if that partner doesn't work, we might move on thinking a new partner is going to be the answer. But of course it's not. It's, it's a new partnership with ourself that's going to be the answer in that case. Um, so you said, it, you know, why is it so complex? Well, I, I actually think it doesn't have to be complicated. That's the, that's the irony of it all. Um, because when you get the hang of it, it's actually incredibly simple. Um, but we're not taught how to do relationship stuff when we go to school. We're not really, really taught about it in our family. All we see is our parents or our parent as a role model. And we just think, oh, yeah, that's normal. And it's not until you, most people get up and they leave home and they think, gosh, you know, there are other families that do things differently and there are other ways of doing life. So we, as children, we're really stuck with what we have at home and then... Conditioned. Really conditioned. Very conditioned. Yeah. And it, see. Yeah, it's, and it's like that analogy of the, the fish in the ocean. The fish doesn't even know it's got water around it. It's just so prevalent. And it's like that with us growing up. We just, we just think this is, this is how the world is. So it does actually. Do you think, do you think then just, just leaping in there and the yeah. self development thing that you've niched, that there's this sort of this, not this level of inquiry often from many of us as humans to dig deep or to, to, to find out more about how we tick? I'm just thinking about all the extraneous things that are out in the marketplace right now as you're talking. I'm thinking about people that bend, do bendy things in yoga and they meditate and they, there's a lot of speak about mindfulness and, um, and so forth, you know, out there at the moment, ways to reconnect with self. Do you do you think that these things help, or do you actually think this needs to be more of a psychological engagement to get the results? I do. I, I totally do. I think if it, the the med meditation, which I really love and enjoy, and yoga, which I love and enjoy, they're all ways of actually just sort of calming you down, which is fantastic. And when you're calmed down, you can often see situations and things more clearly. But if you've actually got this kind of heavy load of conditioning that you're not aware of that is interfering in your primary relationships, no amount of yoga or meditation is actually going to help you in that moment where you're in full-scale conflict with your partner or you're feeling totally bereft and grief-stricken and rejected and jealous and all those things that crop up. There, there has to be something that gets you to look at where does this come from? And, you know, in this wellness space that we're in at the, at, you know, for the At Source podcast, when I speak to some wellness um, practitioners, particularly, you know, some quite well-known wellness practitioners, they often refer to the old brain and the new brain. And there's quite a big conversation around who we were as cavemen or cavewomen mm -hmm. back in historic days. And now there's all this thinking that would actually break all of that down and make us be more tuned in to new ways of thinking and that we are able to adopt and adapt and wear that cloak of the new brain, understanding the limitations of the old brain, but moving into a more kind of enlightened space around decision-making, choices for health and wellness, you know, relationships and so forth. So what, what are your thoughts around that kind of speak? 
Well, I, I haven't heard a lot of the talk of old brain, new brain, but what I do know is we can't es escape our biological makeup and we have a central nervous system and uh, comp components of that are the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. The sympathetic is our flight or fight mode, the parasympathetic is our rest and digest mode and pr throughout the space of the day we click in and out of those two systems. So, you know, someone might cut us off in the traffic and we go into the sympathetic we sit down and have relaxing coffee with a friend and we go into the parasympathetic. We are operating at a, a very primitive level of flight or fight or, or resting and relaxing. And no amount of new brain is actually going to alter us slipping into those states. But we can become more aware of the states that we're in and we can develop tools to help us get out of the, the less helpful um, sympathetic one because that, that was the caveman um, adaptation. So, you know, you're in the cave and there's a big mammoth coming in, you're going to be eaten, your family are going to be eaten. So you need to be able to jump up, get all your oxygen going to your extremities, um, find some superhuman strength, grab that club and beat the predator um, away. So that's great for those days. But we get into those states when we're running late for a meeting and we're standing at the bottom of an, ele in an elevator and we're punching the button and going, when are we going to get up there? And it's not going to happen. And before we know it, we're in that same flight or fight mode. And then we get into the meeting and we're, and we're across the table from someone that we often have conflict with. So we stay in that heightened state. And then we look at the uh, um, phones and I've got to get home. I've got to be there for when the babysitter leaves. And so that's, you know, you, you can stay in it all day if you think about it. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of like life is sort of full of exclamation marks. Yeah. As you're talking, it's sort of like I can just see these exclamation marks in red coming at me, jumbo sized. And we have to kind of be able to manage that and be able to go, well, what's a core priority? Let's just prioritize what's absolutely essential. And everything else can kind of work in around that. But that does take a, de a good degree of mindfulness. Uh, just in terms of, you know, what a great relationship might look like or should look like. It's very easy on the outside to go, oh, that couple, you know, God, they've got it cinched. Or, um, you know, they just, they're just they just so perfect for each other. And then sometimes you meet couples and you go, I don't really get that, like what, how that works exactly. And I remember my mother once said to me, you never know really what's going on behind closed doors because she sort of said that there's obviously a chemistry that works between two people and it's not something that the outside world's ever going to really understand. It's sort of intrinsic to the couple. So I guess there's a couple of things in here. Do you agree with that? And what do you think about these constructs around what a great relationship should look like and what would it look like if there is such a thing? Okay, well, that, that idea of um, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors, I would take that a step further and, and say that those two people who are in that room behind the closed doors don't even know what's going on themselves <laughs> because it's, once again, it's primitive conditioning that's brought them together and often it's something like, you know, it's that Jerry Maguire movie, you know, you had me at hello, it's that... Um, you don't know what it is, but it might be the sound of someone's voice in the room or someone's laugh, a smile, a smell, the, the glow of their skin. It could, you know, chemistry, it could be anything. And then you're, sorry. Oh, right. and then you're a Gomberger, aren't you? And whether that's the right person for you or not, you're, it's beyond your control. And you might find out most of the time it's not, but that's, that's our primitive kind of mating instinct. So we can't really help that. And I think opposites can attract as well. And so from an outsider's point of view, people are going, God, they're so different. But I think difference is really good. And I think that adds novelty and variety. And it's not about how different or alike we are. It's actually how people relate to one another. And we, all we want as human beings in the world and in relationships is to feel respected, understood. And if we're respected and understood, we feel loved, whether it's loved by a best friend, whether it's loved by a partner, whether it's loved by a parent. Those are the primary things that we want is to feel understood and respected. And when you think about it, yeah, and if you feel understood, you generally feel respected anyway. That's right. And and I do remember reading, you know, with your own marriage, and I think people are a little in awe and they're in awe that you had some, you know, counselling along the way, which I thought was really interesting. I mean, I don't see why you would be any different from anybody else that's walking the planet, right? Um, and of course, as you said, having a lens on your own life is, is, is a very different kind of process than being really good looking at everybody else's life. So I, I get that. Um, I think it's really great personally that you came out and said that because I think it demystifies this notion of perfection 
So I, I say kudos to you. I, I thought that was really refreshing. Um, but I did, I did sort of find it really interesting and I could relate to you saying that in the first decade, it was all about being right. So I kind of remember in my late 20s, right through to about 40, I was all about being right. And yes, I had to have the last word. I was really good at it. Um, <laughs> like anybody that wanted to out-debate me, best of British, I'd say to them. Oh. Um, and, then, and then that next decade, it was sort of like, well, actually, it's not about being right. I don't really give a shit if you're right. Um, mm. It's really about compromise, as you sort mm. of put it. Mm. And it's going, well, navigating, okay, so there are differences. What, what's the threshold? What can I not do? handle to mm. compromise on. So it's more that understanding as you That's, kind of get think into your 40s and a little bit more knowing. Um, what can I tolerate? What will yeah. I compromise? Yeah, right? yeah. And we call those what's what's non-negotiable and what's mm. negotiable. So for example, it's it's non-negotiable that that my partner um, is heavily into porn, for example. But it's negotiable that my partner never picks up the towel in the bathroom and inevitably I end up picking it up. But, you know, that's okay because he cooks really nice meals at night and, and in return he puts up with my mess in the bedroom, for example. You know, that's sort of negotiable, non-negotiable. Um, so, th- so those two things are um, really important. And it's about, we can, we can talk more about that, but I'll just briefly, quickly answer the other part to your question, which is what are the, these ideals? And people have these myths about relationships that we, sh- we should always look like we're in love we should never fight. We should be on the same page about everything. Uh, we should be alike and we should do everything together. And I, I just think those are, you know, trouble spots if you think that you're going to be in this Siamese twin arrangement and joined at the hip. Because rela- a good relationship really is like two sort of overlapping circles. In the space of the day, they separate, they go out, They do people do their own thing. They come together maybe when they have phone calls, they go out and then at night they come together and they kind of overlap. And then obviously if you have sex, you're in that really sort of symbiotic, um, you know, completely joined state. But it's got to be a, a, a moving system. It can't just be we're stuck like this. And I often see couples who are in that real twinny stage at the start and they just can't go anywhere without the other one and it's just a disaster. Do you think that that is something that uh, even older couples who might be just hooking up kind of have too, that the Siamese twins thing, that that, that is a picture of success, like, contentment and, and alignment? Well, I, or do you I think, think that small younger people had that vision of that's what togetherness means? Do you know what? I think sometimes, I think young people tend to do it more because they're also in their early, late teens, early 20s, they're still forming their own identity and they end up sort of forming a, a couple identity at the cost of their own individual ones. And then later on in life, if they've got together really early, you find that they have to start to individuate out to, to be their own people. Whereas people that are linking up later in life do have a solid sense of themselves individually, so they may be less likely to do it. But if you ask anyone those first few sort of, um, you know, glorious weeks of love or months, you, you generally want to be around that person as much as you can because you, you, you're both on best behaviour for starters. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of call it like there's seasons, you know, yeah. of sort of seasons for things, right? And, yeah. and then if you evolve and mature, I think relationships possibly have seasons too. Um, I don't know, you know, some some seasons last 30 years and, and people manage to kind of do all four seasons in one year and that's amazing, you know, and some people just really struggle with that. Um, in terms of, you know, routines and I guess practices that couples can create together when they first start dating to ensure their foundations are sort of strong enough to withhold the storms mm. the ups and downs of life later on, mm. what are they? Because... Mm. That's got to be, there's got to be something in that. And married Mm. at first sight kind of counters that Mm. because everything happens fast and hard and these big decisions are made. Mm. Yet we know everyone's on best behavior. Mm. And just the way humans are, it's not until you kind of live with a human for a period of time, unfortunately, that you see the way that they actually are. Yeah. I think if you're just dating with someone in the outside world and you're not necessarily living together, I think the three months is really the threshold if you're seeing them, say, three or four times a week or whatever. It's usually after three months that those um, veneers will drop and, and you start to get a real sense of what's behind the screen with the other person and that same that person with you. So I kind of have a three-month sort of threshold on that and that's that's really when you do start to get the measure of this person and, 
And, and that, I don't mean to sound mean about that, but it's just really looking at what's under the hood, really, and what else is going on there, other than the sort of the chocolate. And some people don't even let you see that up to three months. No, some people... Like, I've encountered that in my own life, that it actually, it's sort of like you keep turning a page, but there's sort of nothing there. You're wanting to find something more and, and you just can't quite break through. So, yeah, I think the time factor is really important. So is that, is that a good thing, if you're turning the page and you can't find something? I think it definitely, I think, for me, it poses questions around around a psyche. But I think um, some people maybe also need to see more than others. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I was thinking more about sort of bad behaviours and, you know, for for example, yeah, I was thinking more someone can sort of have... um, you know, less, you know, more control of sort of impulses and not not get aggressive, not not do outbursts, um, not not sort of not not sort of demonstrate heavy heavy binge drinking and things like that. I think three months yeah. after that, you know, something's got to snap. <laughs> yeah, I can't, yeah, we call them red flags, right? It's sort of like <laughs> yeah, is there anything right. kind of here that I need to be very aware of and and concerned about. Uh, there are some, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've the second part, which is what you think um, couples can do when they're dating to see if they can lay a good foundation. Um, and I think you know it's really basic stuff. It's really practical stuff that you probably know really well. But the, the time together, it really needs to be screen free. I know that sounds you know sort of hackneyed, but it really does. They need to put their devices down, TV off, um, and just have time with themselves. They need to also do things together, um, you know, to get out and about, go for a bush walk, maybe hire some kayaks and go out or um, anything that requires a little bit of physical exercise and some level of challenge or endurance in it, like, you know, maybe a really long day out on a hot beach or something like that where you both get a bit tired and hungry and thirsty and sunburnt and you just want to, um, you know, go back to something that feels less sort of arduous because it's when we're in those slightly uncomfortable situations, people start to get a bit angry or upset or... And that those are the perfect times to negotiate how you handle stress. So you put yourselves under sort of little bits of stress because really at the end of the day, once you move in with someone, there's going to be nothing but stress. <laughs> you know, it's like life's a shit sandwich and it's always lunchtime. You know, it's going to be coming at you from every direction. Um, so it's sort of testing what you're like under pressure. I mean, traveling's a great way to do that. My husband and I traveled in India not long after we met. Yeah. And that was just an absolute baptism by fire in terms of our relationship. I think we fought the whole way around. But it, it sort of did help us become a bit more resilient in our arguments and a little bit better at arguing and knowing what those red flags were within ourselves and each other. So I think doing sort of stuff together is really good. Um, I think um, keeping your own friends in your own lives is really important. And I think you, you know the book by um, Esther Perel, Mating Captivity, that's a fantastic book, and she talks about that ad nauseum, that we need to have our own sense of who we are. We need to have our individual interests and pursuits. We need to be away from our partner to come back to introduce some novelty and some intrigue and a little bit of mystery, and I think that's really important. So that's that's once again reinforcing not being the Siamese twin model. And the other thing is having frequent check-ins with each other. Um, when I do a lot of couple work, I will say to couples, right, you need to have 50, what I call 15 minutes therapy every night. And I'll say, what's that? Okay. When you come into the door together, you put the kids in front of the TV if you have to, you turn your phones off, you find the time to just go into, the, into another room or into the car, anywhere where you can have a bit of peace and quiet and just spend 15 minutes, no more. How was your day? How was your day? Um, anything you need to say, well, yeah, I was really annoyed when you didn't unpack the dishwasher this morning and I had to do it. Anything you need to say, well, I was hoping you'd give me a call today and you didn't, okay, I'm really sorry about that. And and then at the end point, how are you feeling about us? How are you feeling about our relationship? So really go right into those deep dive questions, but limit it to 15 minutes because... Yeah, yeah. You know what, I mean? you can understand why, can't oh, you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I tend to go on and on and on about these things and it doesn't bode very well. So no. I think... You can't kind of slice and dice it for longer than 15 because, no. you know, no one's listening after 15 minutes. Hey, well, and the, the whole the, the whole point, we also to have equal ear time, <laughs> Kieran, <Yeah. laughs> not one person, equal ear time. And then if it feels like we're not going to solve this tonight, great. It's our first thing on the agenda tomorrow night. And it's usually the poor, it's often the poor men who think, oh, God, 
we got one of those check-ins tonight. Oh, am I going to get to watch my Netflix or am I going to get to bed before midnight? Because he knows that the list is, you know, going to be very, very long. So it's quite reassuring for people who are worried that that list is just going to go on and on. Oh, oh, 15 minutes is up, honey. <laughs> hey, but there's never a good time to be a pursuer. There's no, never really a good exactly. time. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, as much as I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, whether it's, you know, 15 minutes, I'll usually get all that. That's a, oh, in for the big questions tonight. That's a, that's a deep dive question. Yep. And I've held a few back. So consider yourself lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so there's just different ways of actually, you know, negotiating that, negotiating that. But I do, I do like the whole, you know, have a small physical challenge out there because when I recently started dating again a, a couple of years ago, I had a really nasty flight of stairs locally. And I thought I'm going to put him up. I'm going to put him on his paces if he because I'm fit. So I thought if he can't make it to the top of the stairs and talk, and and actually uh, not be too puffed out, well, let's test that. So I stress tested that flight of stairs just to sort of see, you know, what his general oh. energy levels were like. <laughs> so I do. We did it. We did a little bit of walking and a little bit of puffing and stair climbing. So. I do, I do, I was sort of smiling as you were sort of talking about physical pursuits because I, um, oh, you know, specifically. You're ahead, of, you're ahead of the game. Ob- you're ahead of the game. <laughs> put a small, small obstacle in place just to kind of check everything was running in good running order. Um, Perfect. So in, in, you like that? Yeah, I love it. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, you did mention sort of Esther Perel as, as, as a, um, you know, an interesting sort of prominent psychotherapist mm. and, uh, she has a bit to say on the topic of cheating, and she says that cheating doesn't have to sort of spell or mean the end of a relationship. Um, I was just interested in your thoughts on this. Yeah. Look, I, um, I think she, she's definitely saying it's not the ideal. Um, she's, not, she's not advocating that people do it uh, because it does cause a huge amount of pain and distress. And what she's really saying is if, if it's not been too damaging, there is definitely room for repair and that's my experience as a couple counsellor, that if, if it's not too damaging, and I'll go into that in a minute, um, couples can actually end up being in a better off place than they were to start with. Because people have affairs for a number of different reasons. Sometimes it's out of boredom. Sometimes it's out of um, lack of uh, physical attraction to the other person. Sometimes it's just a cry for help. And sometimes it's just, I actually want to get out of here, but I don't know how to. So I'm sure if I have a fling, that'll... That'll put the cat among the pigeons. That'll stinch it. That'll fix it. So I think a lot of the people I've seen, um, it's been a couple maybe to try and inadvertently get out of the relationship, but it's mainly been people who just haven't known how to say, I'm not happy and I would like this to be better. Um, And then they seek solace with someone else. It's not excusing their behaviour at all because a betrayal is just so messy and murky and it causes so much damage. And the the time and effort it takes to build the trust up again is phenomenal, really is. Um, But it can be done. Now, the things that will make it really tricky are two things, really. If a person has an emotional connection with the other person, not just physical, with the person he or she's cheated with. And if that person that's done the cheating continues to whitewash or lie to the partner about it. So the partner might say, are you sure you're not sleeping with someone else? Or where were you last weekend? And then if the, the, the cheating partner lies about that and it goes on for a long time, even if it just goes on for a few weeks or it goes on for three or four lies, then when it all comes out and even if the partner that cheated said, I'm really sorry, I want to fix it, there's a lot of damage that's been done because it's not just the physical cheating. It's the it's the deception that goes with it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's a, it's a really big topic. And, and I think some people are quite black and white about these things and will just say it's sort of like it's in a, it's a, it's sort of what did you have a word for it? Like a, a non-negotiable, you know, mm. some people say, oh, you know, if that happened, mm. there's no way I'd be able to have a full return. I mean, I look, I do that. I go down the streets and go, I'd never live there, you know, and then the next thing I'm going to an open home there. Mm. So I sort of, I do sort of feel a bit cynical now. I'm, I'm, I'm going, oh, note to oneself, you can have all these absolutes, but mm. um, it's not always the way it's going to sort of roll out. What do you think about um, polyamorous relationships? Are you comfortable sort of discussing oh, absolutely. your views around that? You know, say, say as, as opposed, you know, as, as a sort of contrast to a monogamous kind of model. Look, I think that I've had a lot of clients who've been in those relationships and all I can say is they're very tricky to pull off. They really are. 
Um, even if you have the idea, which is both partners saying, I'm really into this, we're, we're both really into this, and we're both giving each other permission to have sex with other partners, and, you know, no, no questions, yeah. that sort of thing. That can start off quite well, but before I, before I get into that, generally it's not always like that. It's usually one partner that's not pressured the other one, but saying, I really need this and I want this for variety, and the yeah. second partner's saying, oh, but I don't want to lose you, okay, I'll do it for you. So more often than not, that's what I've seen, and, yes. and that ends yes. in disaster. Um, but if you do have that rare sort of starting off, we're both into this, hey, we're really cool, it's all good, that can start off quite well. But ine inevitably what I've seen is at one point, one of those people starts to develop an emotional connection with the person they're linking up with, and that becomes the death knoll of that primary relationship. So they can handle the sex because it's transactional, and that their primary attachment is to the other person. But if that attachment gets broken, the emotional attachment gets broken, then uh, that's when it comes off the rails. Uh, do, you, do you think that it's, so it's not a long-term solution, that's what I'm hearing here. Oh, no, I don't. It's usually part of an experimental thing that couples go through or a, one of the people wants to do and the other one, as, as I said, go along, goes along with it. But um, our primary relationships are all about attachment um, there's a great book by Sue Johnson who does emotionally focused therapy called Hold Me Tight and she explains it really well that our um, person that we've partnered up with for life, we are imitating some sort of attachment that we had when we were a baby. Um, and if you, and you, if you look at photos of a, a mother gazing into a baby, baby's eyes or a dad gazing into the baby's eyes and then you look at a couple in the street in the first photos of love, it's the same sort of look of absolute adoration and I only have eyes for you. So we're replicating something from a really primitive time in our life and emotional attachment is trumps physical at any time. So as soon as it becomes an emotional affair or betrayal, um, that's when things hit the skids. Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's more a state of mind though, isn't it? It's not necessarily polyamory is not so much um a call for help because you you know your relationships are failing. No, it's oh, more no, state no. of mind. It's a philosophical yeah. stance, right? Yeah. yeah, it's about getting a bit more variety and spice into into their lives. And in an ideal world, that that's a fantastic concept. And if they can pull it off, I think it's brilliant. But what I'm saying is, it's quite, it's quite, quite tricky. tricky to navigate. Tricky to navigate. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it's complex. And you know, do you think that's different or the same as an open relationship? Um. No, I think same in an open relationship. Absolutely. Fundamentally the same yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. Do you think there's such a thing as, and I've heard this quite a bit through the years, you know, there's such a thing as the right people at the wrong time. Mm. Um, you know, can two people sort of decide they love each other, but sort of want different things in the short term, and then perhaps find their way back together after some time apart or time yeah, I've, I've heard, yeah, No, I've heard lots of stories like that and really successful ones. And I've had a lot of couples who have actually separated and they've been apart for maybe two or three years and then they come back together again. We're just actually thinking about Ben Stiller and his wife, Christine, I can't remember her last name, but they've just kind of got back together after a significant sort of break from one another. And when that happens, I think, um, I think that actually just bodes really well in terms of their own growth as a couple. And clearly they obviously needed to do what they had to do in terms of their own personal growth. So I think, I think that's a, an amazing concept. And it's a shame we don't do that a little bit more, but we, we kind of get um, <laughs> we, we get sort of bogged down because we have families often and children and, and you know, children wouldn't necessarily yeah. understand that. But there's something to be yes. said for, for couples even, you know, every five years. Well, let's have, a, let's have a six month sabbatical from one another, for example, and you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and you can negotiate whether it's, you know, it means it's an open relationship or not. But we just sort of get back in touch with sort of what we want and who we are as individuals and do some growth. And then we come back together. I, I don't hear a lot of that going wrong. No, I don't, I don't, no. no. It's, it's quite sad when I look at any No, long-term relationships. I, I think they should be like dog licences. I think we've got to renew them all the time. And, you know, am I ready to do the next round with you? And if so, what needs to be different? We need to go up to the next level now. You know, we've, we've done this in our lives, but our, our needs are changing and we need to renegotiate what we need from one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting topic. And I meet, you know, people that have been married for long, long periods of time and they might be apart. And, you know, I'll, I'll often pose that question. Well, you know, do you think you could make that work again? Surely that would be better or 
somewhat easier to navigate than starting all over again. Are you actually sure that you want to be doing this? So I, I think I do believe in second chances um, mm. personally, but I think it does depend on the circumstances and the history because if there's been a lot of loneliness in the relationship for many years, it can be really difficult to have the kind of motivation to want to give it another go. So I, I think know. it can depend, right, on the circumstances yeah. uh, around your emotional awareness Absolutely, yeah, and there's, yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. And an old supervisor, or well, she's not old, but a supervisor I had called Rhonda Pritchard um, talked about couples they get to a point of, or one person can get to a point of no return. Um, so the, the whole lot of stuff could have gone down, and then suddenly, and, and I have this a lot. I have a lot of men ringing me saying, "Well, can you see us urgently? Can you see us urgently?" And so, and, and I'll say, "Well," mm, and it's often. It's often people who haven't wanted to address it that get really desperate at the end, and and the yeah. and the, and then I'll find out that the wife's or the partner is is already out the door with the suitcases running down the driveway, and he's going, "Can can you help us?" And I'd say that that woman at that point is at the point of no return. There's so much totally has gone under yeah. the bridge, and then there's yeah. the old saying that we can have some therapy, we can try and do our best, and and some of these couples will do it, and one partner's quite checked out, and. Um, and then the other partner's making these miraculous changes. And then the first partner's sort of saying pretty much, look, it's great. It's everything I've always wanted, but it kind of feels too little too kind late. Kind of too late. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're burnt I out. Think, I, I think I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. I think that women do a lot of their leaving while they're in the relationship. And then when 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 they make the decision to leave, it's just a consolidation of months and months of rehearsing to be leaving. Yeah. Couldn't mm. agree more. I mm. don't even think that men... Rehearse it. I don't think, no. you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts, but no. I don't think they do that deep dive of imagining. You know, they don't. They're, they're, no, they're often, they're often blindsided by it and they just can't work it out. And, the, and they, it would, you know, obviously we're talking heterosexual relationships and, and the, the female will say, but I've been trying to tell you this for years. I've been trying to tell you. And often in the, in the defence of men, often they're really focused on um, being busy, being task orientated, um, yeah. doing what it takes. Hunters and providers. Yeah, and usually the women are providing themselves these days and doing their childcare because the default position usually always falls back on the women. Um, and and they're not. They're just not. And and boys aren't socialised to to understand relationships and understand. And yeah, and understand yeah. feelings. They have just as many feelings as women, but they they haven't been taught to value them, and it's not okay to talk about them and show them. As we know. That's right. So I've got a 14-year-old daughter, so I'm dreading the day she brings a boy home and says to me, you know, hey, you know, I'd like you to meet someone. What do you think kind of thing? Do you think you can just sort of um, sort of see a good catch? What does a good catch look like? <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> I think, I, well, it's that whole thing again, you mean from her perspective or from her mother's? From a parental <laughs> perspective, like... How can oh, well? I think there's two questions in there. You know, how can a, a single available person see a good catch and get that right? Sum it up, wrap it up. Number yeah. one, and then how can a parent read if, if someone's a good catch? Okay, that's 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 a good question. First of all, love will find the way. I mean, you, you, as you know, Cupid's both kind of hits generally. So your daughter will probably feel quite powerless at the time when when the, this person comes into her life. Um, so from your perspective, from your question is, and this is what I say to a lot of people when they've, they've got a new partner, um, take that partner out with your best friends. And it's not for your friends to sit there and judge, is this person right for my friend or not? It's for your friends to notice how you are around your new partner. And if you're just the same happy, outgoing, smiley person and are relaxed around this person, then that's a really good sign. So in answer to your question, Karen, if your daughter can still be your beautiful daughter in, in all her glory um, around the boy she brings home with you there, then that's a really good sign. But if you find she sort of mm. goes a bit quiet or she's waiting to see what he says before she says something or she's acting in a very strange way, almost, you know, she's showing off too much or something like that. You think, yeah, oh, not a vision of her stuff. Yeah. 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 So if she can just be her, she can just be your daughter and she's clearly comfortable with this person, that's a good sign. 
Mm. Yeah, no, it's nice. And I think you're talking about being an authentic vision of yourself um, yeah. with, that, with that other person. That's great. And what about if you're sort of navigating the dating world and looking for love and you spot someone? I mean, how do you sort of quickly cut through the crap to see that they might have, you know, good good bones? Well, I mean, that's just really spending a bit more time with that person, getting a bit more information. And you can, you know, do it in a sort of a low-risk way, you know, just sort of have a few coffees together, maybe a couple of dinners. You'll soon, you'll soon get the lie of the land, I think, whether you want to just take it to the next step, whatever that step might be. So it's following your heart, knowing yourself, knowing that you've got good boundaries if you need them, knowing that you feel comfortable exiting something if it doesn't feel right, um, and but being very open to whoever's in front of you and try not to put meeting um, Mr. Or, or Ms. Wright as your main goal because that becomes, um, you become too fixated. Pretty on heavy. It Pretty is, heavy. it is. It's, it's, you've just got to have your own life, think, well, if I meet someone, I meet someone um, and I'm going to have fun because I think fun's really important. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And I think you made a really interesting comment too about down toolsing if, if you've had a relationship that hasn't worked. To actually give yourself about a year, you recommended, just to mm. sort of defrag before you yeah. sort of moved on to the next one. And I think that's, there's probably something in that. Um, I don't know if if we do that enough, you know, if you sort of yeah. might, might. I'm not talking about maybe just flicking straight back, the switch back on after a month or so, mm. but I don't know, you know, there's not that many people that would sort of hang tough for a year single. No, and, and what, I've prob- what I meant by that was because a lot of people go in thinking, especially depending on their age, if you've got people who are in their sort of 30s thinking, oh, well, you know, biological clock's, clock's ticking or all my friends are partnered up, um, then I, what I'm trying to say is just try and have some fun and try and not get fixated on it and just explore and enjoy but if you're sort of going into, uh, um, you've had a really long relationship and you're feeling like you're coming out of a bit of train wreck at the end of it, what I'm saying is just don't do a, a, a serious partnering up with someone that you are eyeing up for the future. By all means, go out and have fun, date different people, but just see them as someone I'm going out to dinner with tonight or someone I'm going away over the weekend with. Try not to have at the back of your mind, is this going to be the next, is this going to be my life partner now? You know, is this, is this the person I can actually finally settle down with and... And if I, you know, if I want to have babies or whatever, I think that trips people up because they're constantly yeah. thinking the t- the clock's ticking, and it mightn't be a biological clock. It's just like, you know, I just want a life partner. Why isn't it happening? Mm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, I think you know that's that's a good a good point and some some learnings in there for people just to be able to sort of take some time. Just coming back to sort of the mental wellness space now, we, if we sort of turn inwards to that, I wanted to just ask you a little bit about your experience with psychiatry and trauma. I um, mean, we we do all meet people, you know, in all walks of life that have suffered trauma. And I'm just interested in really the healing around that because you have sort of two, I think you do have two sets of people, right? People that do want to kind of work around getting healed up from that trauma and moving on. And some people just seem to be very incapable of of healing up and they want to carry that with them Mm. throughout their lives um, and just continue to feel traumatized and displaced. Um, You know, say that you, you know, do you think you ever sort of leave, it leaves you? Or do you think that it's always there and you've got to just cognitively be rehearsing different path mental pathways to get better results for your yeah. life? There's two, there's two components to that. One is what I call a pre-morbid personality. What was that person's experience of self before the, the trauma? You know, so if someone got right through to his or her 30s and then something traumatic happened, um, that person's got a good chance of sort of recovering and moving on because it's been a really solid sense of self as opposed to a, a child who is sexually abused from the age three or four onwards. You know, that's all that child's known. So that's a much harder um, thing for that person to shed later in life because it's just, it's been all he or she's known from a very early age. So there's there's a couple of things there. And also it depends on how many setbacks people have had in their lives in terms of how they've developed their resilience to life. Um, their family systems, whether they've always had a really supportive family system, that, that goes a long way in helping support and heal any sort of trauma that comes out or happens, or a family that's always been quite damaging and abusing and um, would never sort of support someone who's having to, to try and resolve these issues. So there's, there's that component of it. But there's, the second one is um, there's a fantastic book called The Choice by Edith Egar. She's an Auschwitz survivor. 
And she she spells it out beautifully. Um, she you know she would say any 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 trauma does leave scars. And a successful trauma story though is is when a person heals and becomes stronger, like she did, in spite of what happened. So she became a, a much more whole person out of it. And it took years and years of therapy, by the way. It's not something you can do yourself. You need help. Um, and I think the best case scenario with any sort of trauma is. Um, finding a way to shrink it down to a little icon on your screen. If, if it's on your, you know, say you, you are the laptop, you're shrinking it right down. So when you're really f- triggered and traumatised, it's like the screensaver. It's flashing at you all the time. It's all you see. And over time and over good therapy, it's a little bit like the black dog of depression. You find a way to minimise it down and tame it. So it's in the corner. You know it's there. It's never going to disappear. But you are in charge of it. It's not in charge of you. Mm. There's been some incredible TED Talks and stories um, from Auschwitz um, survivors in general. It just seems to be a chapter of history that kind of produced diamonds, you know, and gold in terms of talking about human resilience and forgiveness and trauma, you know, and how to how to be happy. There's a lot mm-hmm. of sort of happiness topics as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that's it's an interesting, um, I guess, an interesting reference point that you've raised that today because well, it's actually it's come up before. Well, the other thing that um, um, Edith says in her book is she had to make a choice whether she was going to let this trauma define her and she was always going to be the survivor and the victim uh, because people can hold on to that as an identity and it becomes a way of not actually engaging in life and not entering in life. So, so true. That's right. And, of course, you know, you bring those traumas to a relationship. You can't help but bring them. They are, they are you know, I don't know if baggage is a fair word, but it's sort of, it is part of the deal, right? That's part Mm. of the the composite of that person. So unless that person's actually done some work and, you know, to address it, Mm. it is a tough, it is a tough one to negotiate. And you do realize in the scheme of things that, you know, that that other person's not their bandaid. They're not going to be able to fix that stuff either. No, And And it's a heavy burden for someone who's, the partner of somebody who's traumatised to actually have to carry because you know intrinsically that you're not going to be able to fix that person's pain. That's right. And so the onus is on the person who has suffered it to get external Mm. help and to work Mm. through it so that that burden doesn't sit with the partner. And and also also just heal in in, in that person's own right as well with some professional help. That's right. Yes. Do you see young people? Like, do you talk a lot to sort of adolescents and and sort of get in touch with some of their mental health struggles Mm -hmm. at the moment? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that that online world, that domain of online, uh, has pretty much shaped adolescent psychology? Oh, I think it has. And, I, you know, I mean, there's obviously huge benefits with the, the, ch- the technological changes that have happened in the last 50 years. But I think what it's done to this generation is it hasn't allowed them to basically just do those good old-fashioned face-to-face interactions with people on the hard stuff. You know, um, it's so easy these days just to ghost someone or not respond to their post or to put a little hate icon up or a like icon up. And they're not actually developing great empathy skills because they're not yeah. seeing the other person's face generally and they're not reading the other person. Uh, and also the, the, this whole online stuff promotes massive self-absorption and, and comparison. And, of course, everyone on Instagram, Facebook, they're just putting up the, these glossy, idealised versions of themselves that we all know that's the case, but you can't help feeling a little bit inadequate when you see someone else's you know, fabulous vacation at the Yeah, selfie. Yeah, aren't we? Having, aren't we having fun? Aren't we, aren't we having a great time? <laughs> it's probably being doctored by FaceTune as well. Yeah. Um, you know, even though they're thirteen or fourteen and probably have perfect skin. Um, if you were to kind of sort of cinch what you think the biggest problem is for youth today, like the biggest, most encompassing challenge for young people, and I know that's a hard question. Mm. I mean, but what would it be? Could you well, answer I, that? I, one? What, sorry, what was your... I was just saying, could you answer it or is it a bit too black and white? No, I'm a little bit dark on devices at the moment for young, young people. I mean, I know it's sort of been a, a lifeline for many and, um, you know, I never dare wrestle one off my niece or nephew. Um, and I tried to wrestle one off off my son when he was growing up and that, that backfired. 
So it is a way that people can feel connected. Um, and, you know, if you've had a fight with mum or dad and you go to your room and you can get on get online and talk to your friends. So, that you know, there's, there's massive advantages of that and, and just feel like you've got this sort of community of people around you, even though if they're not there in your house and in your bedroom and things like that. But the flip side is I feel like, it, um, I still feel that a lot of people in their 20s haven't developed great relationship skills. They don't know how to do the tough stuff when they are in a situation where they disagree with someone or they don't like what someone's done or someone doesn't like what they've done. They're not able to sort of get into that reality of kind of just give and take and negotiating. Um, well, that's right. And Instagram reality or, or Snapchat reality is vastly different from, you know, FaceTime. And yeah. I'll often talk to my daughter about, well, why don't you get out and, you know, see your friends? And her online community of friends are as valuable to her and as meaningful as her real friends. She mm. seems she doesn't she doesn't, you know, create the 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 boundary or the difference between yeah. virtual friends and it's, it's it slides, you know, it's yeah. just seamless. Yeah. Whereas you our generation, we would tend to uh, go, oh, well, they're not your real friends. You know, that real friends are people that you spend time with. Yeah. So yeah, I do see sort of these massively shifted paradigms, like even not even within a generation, but my observation as a parent is that even with a six-year age gap between my two kids, my son's relationship to technology was vastly different from my daughter's relationship to technology. Now, that might be a little bit about disposition, but mm. it also seems that the device time has ramped up mm. just even in six years of parenting, mm. not, even a decade, not even a generation. So I do I do wonder what it's what Oh, I, look, I, I, I really do have massive concerns about it. I was in Melbourne a couple of years ago and I looked at this table and there was a mother breastfeeding a baby, the grandmother there and a two-year-old. The mother breastfeeding the baby was looking at a phone while she was feeding the, the grandmother was on an iPad and the two-year-old little boy was just playing with the pepper and salt containers by himself. <laughs> I don't know why. It just made me feel really, really sad. Yeah, but kids are very good. They're very inventive. Oh, they find all kinds of things to stay amused. Remember when we used to go outside and just rub two sticks together and see if it would actually, yeah, know. you know, we could make fire? So that's probably... That's right. Our parents were probably in the other room drinking and, and weren't interested in us then anyway. <laughs> and, then, and then getting in the car and driving us home. So, exactly. Yeah, guess, yeah. yeah. But, no, I mean, kids are just so much more inventive when they're sort of left to their own devices. And I think one of the things I also realised was, I, you know, giving up on having a back garden because my kids never really went out and played Amazing. outside. Really? Wow. Yeah, like my son maybe a little more, but um, certainly my daughter having a back garden and even a swimming pool just wow. became just like white noise unless the swimming pool had a shiny screen on it um it wasn't it wasn't sort of an attractive beacon I was the oh, only one using the swimming pool my so it was sort of like what's the point yeah. um you know so I think you know as a parent there'd be many of us listening to this today and just probably nodding and laughing a little uncomfortably laughing because there's some sort of truth in in all of this um so for couples with different communication styles or love languages, and I'm also thinking about culture fit, you know, mm. um, I've dated, I haven't dated a lot of Kiwi guys. And so I'm sort of quite, uh, it, you know, I understand that cult, there are cultural differences, especially when either English is a second language or it's just the construct of English language isn't as developed as the primary language. Mm. Um, and there's also nuances, in, you know, in different cultures. Mm. So that's even more challenging. But if you just talk about, you know, love language and there's different mm. ways of defining how you show love, uh, how do you kind of find middle ground? Because, like, you might be a doer and somebody else might be uh, not a doer, but they might show acts of service in different ways, but it just doesn't quite hit the spot. So how do you kind of navigate that? Well, it's back to the very first, some of the very first questions you asked. It's actually about understanding what your needs are individually. So both people in that partnership need to know enough about themselves to know, well, actually, no. if, you know, what I really like is when you say you, you love me or I look attractive tonight, because that's probably the part of the culture of the family that child grew up in, and that's how that child felt loved. A parent might say, yes. gosh, you look lovely, or I love you. Yes. Um, a, a, a child in another family might grow up knowing that when dad cleaned her car for her, she felt loved. 
when her mother made her sandwiches for lunch, she felt loved. But God, no one used the no one used the L word, but I felt loved because these things happen. So that person going into a relationship will then probably feel a bit uncomfortable if the partner says, I love you. But when once the partner is out, so perhaps hosing down the car or whatever, she might think, oh, he really loves me. <laughs> so it's really understanding what your, your own love language is, understanding what your partner's love language is, um, acknowledging that, and then noticing it. So you know, and and then the 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 the, say the guy who would normally want to say I love you, you think okay, I'll say that, but I know she really likes it when I take her car for a warrant, so I'll do that. So you're sort of mindful of it, or one that thinks, well, you know, I know he really likes little gifts. I I never really did gifts, and I don't really care if I get them, but it's his birthday, and I'm going to get him a series of about six little gifts because he loves unwrapping things. So it's just sort of understanding those little nuances and logging them away so that you do the little tiny things that make the other person feel loved. And, you know, some people are just so much better at that than others, right? Yeah. Like some people just don't get it, you know, they're sort of like you could be smack in the face, you you could be buying yourself flowers for years on end every Friday because your favourite bunch of flowers is in that store and you just don't get any flowers or you just, and you kind of scratch your head and you go, well, that's when you get the flowers and you whack your partner around the face. <laughs> and go, flowers. I actually like flowers. Hello. Flowers, hello. These flowers there. I've flowers. been getting those myself now for two years. Yeah, and then that just kind of ruins it, you know. Um, I've, I've actually had one of those conversations before with the partner in crime at the moment. And it, it was almost, I don't, it got so bad. It was like, you know what, don't even buy me flowers. It would just be ruined anyway, because I've had to tell you that I liked them in the first place. So you, you have to kind of be careful about what you fight about. And, and well, you know what, you're absolutely right. Because you can destroy a really good thing. You totally can. And it, beca- it can become really fraught. And I did that with my husband for years about my birthday. I always wanted a big to-do. And he'd come in, and his family were really low-key on birthdays. So he'd come in with a little card and maybe a little sort of thoughtful book he'd found somewhere. And, you know, about, on about the ninth birthday I had when we were together, I think I just sort of blew up. And, and then he'd send out, even now, after all this time, he gets really nervous leading up to my bed. <laughs> he rings my sister, what should I do? And he's so relieved when the day's over. Yeah, I know. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, Let's just talk quickly before we close about Married at First Sight because, I mean, it is such an interesting social experiment and and it's a construct that, uh, you know, I grapple with. Um, But I'm sure that younger generations um, just, they love it. You know, I've I've had a look on the Facebook page at all the engagement and the the kind of the anticipation of of episodes looming and, and, and so forth. Uh, I mean, obviously, you knew what you knew what you were going into, and you probably completely understood the pitfalls um, and and the bonuses. I suppose there's got to be some upsides, right, to these shows. So, yeah, you know, what was your perception of the concept, you know, before you were part of the show? And obviously, you've done, you know, some journeys through it now. Have they shifted a lot since you've been through it? Um, look, I think when they approached me at that time, I was feeling really like I needed a bit of lightheartedness in my life. I'd been doing a lot of clinical work for years and I just needed something that felt like fun. And from that perspective, it certainly delivered for me. I never actually, um, even though the tiny that I did it with, um, we, we genuinely did try to match people up from the pool of people that we were given. But at the end of the day, we both knew it was always about um, the production company and the network producing compelling TV. That was that was, yeah. that, that was first and foremost. And we knew that. So I kind of went in eyes wide open. And, and my perception hasn't changed. That's what it's about. Compelling yes. TV. So this, this sort of science-led chemistry match. Uh, and when I say chemistry match, I don't mean primal necessarily. Yeah. I mean science-led, factually arranged matches, which might be the way of the future. You know, that, that's probably another conversation. But what do you think? Do you think? Oh, look, I, I think, think, I think they, yeah, I think it was um, Trish who was on the Australian one and she was always on that one. And possibly when she did a guest appearance on this one, they always filmed her at the start in the white coat in, in the lab sniffing a rag. <laughs> and, I, and, and, you know, maybe a test tube in the corner. And I think we we're all going, oh, for goodness sake. You know, the really, you know, it's it was a veiled attempt of saying this. There's some sort of science behind this thinking. Yeah, but but having said that, when we did have everyone's profiles down, and we we all well, Tony and I got to meet everyone, 
we did give it our best shot to think, well, I think these people, these two could, you know, because they've got a lot in common and all these ones, you know, are sufficiently d- different, but they've got children the same age and they're at the same stage, you know. So there was, it was more of an intuitive um, approach that we took. But in regards to the science, I cannot claim 1% yeah. that I was involved in any science on this. Yes. Do you think, you know, when, you, when you're when sort of talking about that gut feeling of that person might be suited to that person and so on that you, you had to mm. sort of work through, um, how did you know? I mean, do you do you think that it 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 works because there's that pursuer withdrawer combo, or do, I mean, have you seen a lot of relationships where there's two pursuers or two withdrawers, and yet you thought they might have been a good fit? Well, I'm just interested in that generally speaking. Yeah, that well, that, dynamic yeah. of pursuer and withdrawer, and I I don't really I don't really understand that. You know, well, that's that Sue Johnson book. Hold me tight. I mean, that will give you all your answers on that. And what she would say is that, yes, you could initially say one person's a pursuer and one's a withdrawer, but over the lifespan of a relationship, whether that's a month on a dating show or, a, you know, a real-term relationship, um, people could flip in and out of those roles. You can actually, you know, it's like two ducks going down the, the beach, one's chasing the other, and then suddenly something, the one gets that's chasing gets burnt out and turns around, and then the other one flips around to go back. So... You know, you get, you get, it's not just a a, a sort of a concrete construct that one person's one and one's the other. They can flip in and out and it's to do with um, communication and level and attachment in the relationship. And one person can, the pursuer can definitely get burnt out and just give up. And then that's usually... Yeah, and I think power balance can shift too within relationships. So you can be, you can be running along you know, with a certain kind of tension or chemistry, mm. and then something might flip, mm. and then that and then that role might change, and you you're kind of conscious of that shift. You yeah. don't want to exploit it, but you're like, yeah. mm, that's that's definitely shifted there, exactly. and that can sort of change it up uh, all over again. Well, I knew our conversation was going to be good fun and enlightening, and oh. offer some great insights. And it's been so good to just chat with you. I, you're all that I expected. I, I knew you'd oh. be um, easy to talk to. And uh, it's just been, I've really enjoyed it. So thanks so much for your time. And I hope that our listeners have gotten something out of this too. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. It's been a delight talking to you too. It's been great and we will stay in touch. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and joining our conversation and stay tuned for more episodes. Please rate, review and subscribe. Check out the show notes if you'd like to contact this episode's interviewee. At Source Podcast does not accept any liability for the results of any actions taken or not taken upon the basis of information in this podcast or for any errors or omissions. Those acting upon information do so entirely at their own risk. We recommend that you seek professional assistance from certified doctors for your health and well-being issues.